This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast here. I am your host, Logan Anderson, and we are joined right now by one of the guests that when I started this podcast, I was really hoping that somehow I could get not actually thinking I'd be able to, Kevin Kugler from Westwood One. He's a Nebraska native, just like me. I feel like that makes us practically the same level of broadcasters, but uh, pretty much everyone else in the world disagrees. Kevin, thanks for joining us here. It's a pleasure to be on. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of the podcast. And one of the things that we do on this podcast for just about everybody to just kind of get things started is give us a little bit of a window into what your first foot in the door in the business was and what break you had to get that, to get that foot in the door. Um, well, it was, uh, it took me seven months out of college to find my first job in broadcasting. And I was, I was one of those guys who I left the university of Nebraska, graduated in December of 1994. And I just assumed I was going to, jump right out into the world and start doing games at a high level and was completely surprised and stunned when broadcasters didn't agree that I was going to jump right out of college and start doing games at a high level. So I had a nice file of rejection letters from all across the country from people who weren't that interested in some college kid's resume and tape that was sent out. Uh, so I ended up starting my career. I spent six weeks in Fairbury, Nebraska. That turned out not to be a very good fit. And so then I moved to York, Nebraska, a small town along the interstate west of Lincoln, for those who are listening to this that don't know where that is and don't want to Google map it. Uh, and I spent a year there doing play-by-play, you know, football, basketball, soccer, baseball, whatever I could do from a play-by-play standpoint I did. I did a pre-pre-game show for Nebraska football on Saturdays. I did anything I could do to get my chance to be on the air. And it was it was the best thing I could have done coming out of college. I got a ton of reps. I did a ton of work. I had a chance to screw up, which I did many times. And the nice thing about doing that is that you screw up in a smaller place like York. The people are very forgiving. They understand why you're there, and they understand that you're trying to get better. And that's exactly what I was trying to do, and it was a great opportunity for me to do just that. But it took a long time to get that foot in the door coming out of college and you know, it's a little humbling. You come out of college, you think you're about ready to grab the world by storm, and uh, it turns out you don't for seven months. And once I finally got that opportunity to get to work, I uh, I was able to move on from there. So it was, it, but it was a it was a process to get to the position where I could actually broadcast games. Was there ever a doubt that you would eventually get to the point where you wanted to go during those seven months? Did you ever consider doing uh, there, anything else? Yeah, I, I did. Um, I, I have. I, I don't really know what that would have been. But there were several times during that stretch where I was thinking, did I just waste all this time getting a degree for something that I'm not going to be able to use? And I, you know, I had done some work in uh, my grandfather's accounting business when I was in college. And so I started to think, do I need to go back and try to figure out a way to, to make it in a different field, whether it be accounting, whether it be business of some sort? You know, a lot of broadcasters move into the insurance world. Maybe I thought I'd go in there. I 
you know, there were a lot of ideas and thoughts floating through my mind as to what in the world I was going to do with myself once I, once I couldn't find that job. Luckily, I was able to find an opportunity in York because I have very few other discernible skills. I'm not particularly sure what I would have done as a result of not having a job in broadcasting, so it's fortunate for myself and for my family that I was able to find, find gainful employment after a while. Did you have a connection with the station in York, or did you just apply for it and on your own merit without knowing anyone end up with the job? It was, it was just a, uh, the job came open. Actually, I had applied for a news reporter job in York and did not get the job. That was in my quest to find employment of any kind, get my foot in the door in any way I could, and I applied for a news reporter job. I didn't get the news reporter job, but they liked what they had heard, I guess, from the sports standpoint. And so then they had a sports opportunity come available and then called me and said, hey, we're interested in bringing you in for the sports opportunity. And it just so happened that the job I'd found in Fairbury, also in radio, just wasn't a good fit for a variety of reasons. And so, and I don't recommend doing this for many people, uh, but I walked in six weeks after I took the job and resigned. And the owner of the radio station at the time told me that I was making the biggest mistake of my life and I would regret it for as long as I was in this business. And he was wrong. I have not regretted that uh, for as long as I've been in this business. It was the right move for me at the time, and it really was a good opportunity. But, yeah, I knew no one at the radio station. I knew no one uh, in York, really, at all. I had no contacts there. I had no family there. I had no friends there. It was strictly an opportunity that came open. It was a little bit closer to Lincoln along the interstate, so I could come back and see college friends if I wanted to. But really, it was just a chance for me to get on the air and do games and you know, try to try to either figure out things that worked or figure out things that didn't on my own. So you you touched on something that I went through a somewhat similar experience out of college. Um, I actually got what was able to get one, fortunately, before I graduated, but I couldn't believe that I had to settle for Denison, Iowa at that time, and I thought I was good and going to take the world by storm, like you said, and I went back and recently listened to that tape and just cringed the whole time. I couldn't, I don't know how in hindsight I believed I was... I even got the Denison job. Have you gone back and listened to your old tapes and and just kind of for nostalgia purposes and found out how you sounded at that time with those thoughts in your head? I'll be honest, I have not because I know how bad it was. <laughs> uh, I know how I know how ragged and rough those days were, and I remember, you know, just how. Because you're look, you get you get your education in a variety of ways. Some of it comes through school, and others of it comes through trial and error. And I was not in the trial and error phase yet as a broadcaster, so I had not had the chance to succeed or fail on doing something that worked or doing something that didn't work. And you know, you certainly get an opportunity to do that as you move on through this business, fail and succeed both. And so, no, I've I've not gone back. I'm fully aware of how awful it is and 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 I'll, and I'll say this though it is this i recommend this to anybody who gets into this business now because we all don't just jump to the big leagues we all don't just start at cbs we all don't just start at westwood one or big 10 network or wherever we it's okay to go somewhere and spend a year or two getting your reps getting your game better it's it's 
really something I would recommend. You're on your own. You're figuring out things. And like I said, the best thing that comes from that is you can screw up. And if you can screw up there, you learn how to avoid that screw-up in the future, and maybe that screw-up doesn't cost you anything down the road because you don't make it because you learned that I was doing the Class B soccer match between York and Aurora, and I said something I shouldn't have. Nothing profane, but, you know, you say something, it's inarticulately worded. You figure out better ways to say stuff. Uh, To me, that's just, it it was a great thing for me, and I tell broadcast students and kids in college and high school kids this all the time, you know, if you're getting into this business, go somewhere where it's okay if you make a mistake. They're not going to crush you for it like they would if you make a mistake on the air in New York and they just beat you senseless in the media. You're not going to get the same kind of Twitter hate if you screw up the Class B soccer match as if you screw up the NFL game of the week. So what was your next career step after that, and what was the break that helped you get into that point? Well, it was uh, I, I moved from the York High Beat to Omaha, excuse me, to Omaha, and uh, took over as the director of broadcasting and public public relations for the Omaha Racers, which was the CBA team in Omaha at the time. And I had not worked for a team before, and I had an opportunity to get my foot in the door. I had known their general manager from his time with the Omaha Royals, a guy by the name of Rob Goodman, and I found out that there was an opening with the Omaha Racers, and so I sent my stuff and went and talked to them, and they liked my tape. Again, it was taped two years or a year and a half removed from college, so I'd gotten a little bit better. I was a little more refined, and it was a little bit improved, and I sent it in, and they liked what they heard, and so they gave me the chance to jump in there and do that, and so I I went from doing high school games to being the youngest play-by-play voice in the CBA at the time. I think I was 24 or 25 years old. And um, enjoyed the heck out of that. It was a great year, and I was just getting my feet under me, and then the team folded. So I was basically three years out of college, and right back where I started, a broadcaster without a job and without really any uh, idea as to what I was going to do from that point on. But it was a great year, and it was one of those opportunities that came up because I'd gone somewhere in a smaller market and worked and tried to get a little bit better, and that a little bit of improvement helped me get that next step. I've talked to coaches who were in the CBA back in its heyday when you were the broadcaster there, and they say it was basically just a wild time. People did crazy things. It was low-budget motels, long bus rides. Give us a couple stories of just kind of weird occurrences or crazy things that happened covering the racers. Oh, there's, there's, I mean, I could, I, I could write, I don't know if I could write a book, but I could write a really long pamphlet about some of the stuff that went on in my year in the CBA. And, and, and anybody who says that is absolutely right. It was, it was wild. It was fun. It was crazy. We always had one long bus trip a year. By the time I got into the CBA, you had teams in West Palm Beach and you had teams in Hartford, Connecticut. So you weren't bussing all these places, but Mike Tebow, who's now the head coach of the Washington Mystics in the WNBA and is the winningest coach in WNBA history. He was our coach and general manager, and so we were you know, like one bus trip a year. So we would go Sioux Falls, La Crosse, Rockford. We'd go on one of these long bus trips. Well, we happened to be in La Crosse, Wisconsin, in between two games on a Sunday night. That Sunday happened to be Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday with the Green Bay Packers playing and winning the Super Bowl. And we're all there watching the Super Bowl, and it is a 
I've never been in anything like this. The entire city showed up in downtown Lacrosse. They just pour into Lacrosse, and everybody's on the streets. The party's going on night. I mean, all night long. You've got Omaha racers, basketball players running around on the streets, and everybody so excited to see what might happen. It was that was a wild night. Some of the weird stuff, though from the CBA comes in the form of promotions. The Florida Beach Dogs were the team in West Palm Beach, Florida. And, you know, you, you, you tried to do anything in the days of the CBA. This is before Isaiah Thomas came in and, and kind of wrecked the CBA. Uh, but this was, you'd do anything, any kind of promotion you could to get people in. Well, the Florida Beach Dogs had a tie-in with a local gentleman's club in the <laughs> West Palm area. And they had a hot tub, one of those portable inflatable hot tubs set up along the baseline, kind of back from the court a little bit. And you could win an opportunity as a Florida Beach Dogs fan to enjoy the Beach Dogs game, whatever night you won the prize, enjoy the Beach Dogs game with one or two of the dancers who were off that night from the Gentleman's Club, or that was their role perhaps that night in the Gentleman's Club, in the hot tub. So there were these people who would win these seats. And, you know, you see those seats all the time where it's the guy in the reclining seat at the end of the bench. Instead of the recliner, it was sit in a hot tub with a stripper at the Florida Beach Dogs game. And sure enough, you'd walk in there, and there'd be some dude, and there'd be the ladies in the hot tub watching a basketball game. And, I mean, that I, I would say that was, that was certainly the most unique promotion that I saw in the days of the CBA. But it didn't surprise me because you did anything you could to convince people, especially at a place like West Palm Beach where they weren't really into minor league basketball, you did anything you could to get these folks into the doors. So it was kind of just like a real-life semi-pro with Jackie Moon. It was. It was very much. I saw no bear wrestling, but it was one of those situations where you wouldn't have been surprised if there had been a bear in the arena. (laughs) So uh, reading up on you a little bit before this, I wasn't able to quite get your kind of first steps kind of down in order. But after that, you got your talk show at 1620 The Zone. You were the University of Nebraska-Omaha, rest in peace, the football team broadcaster. You know, How did you get your foot into those doors? And obviously 1620 The Zone is how I first found out about you growing up 10 minutes from Omaha. We, that came in, we listened to that show. Where did you get to that point? And just kind of give us a little bit of background into how that was like for you, what that was like for you. Well, sure. You know, I when the racers folded, I was, like I said, I was kind of back where I started, a guy with no job. And so I'm freelancing at that point. I did a year of color slash play-by-play for the University of Nebraska women's basketball team. I was kicking around again, doing random random freelance events for NET. I was writing for a website. I mean, I was doing anything I could to just try to keep my foot in the door, but I really wasn't having a lot of success. And I, and I got to a point where I was almost ready to give it up again. And I can still remember I was driving out with Bill Dolman, who was in Nebraska at the time, and he's now since in Colorado. And I, we were going to do the West Nebraska High School All-Star Game in Scotts Bluff. And we took a, a little extra day or so and went to play golf on the way out and, you know, just had kind of a, a couple of days to chat, and, and I, you know, we talked about you know, what was I going to do. I didn't have any idea, and could I keep this up? You know, I, I was married by this point, and trying to figure out exactly, okay, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? 
And so we're on the way out there, and I'm not sure where I'm going. I'm not sure what I'm doing. And I get a phone call from my wife who says, Gary Anderson called, and he wants to talk to you. I mean, I'm right at the point where I'm about ready to say, to heck with it. Let's figure out something else to do with our lives. So I get a call from my wife. Gary Anderson of UNO has called. Their man has left, wants to talk to you about doing football and men's and women's basketball. Well, that was, you know, as a freelancer, that was the that was a big moment because I wasn't sure where I was going, kind of looking for a sign of sorts, and there was my sign. So I get back home after I'm out in Scott's Bluff, and I talk to Gary, and we end up making a, an agreement that I become the guy who does games. So I'm doing UNO football, UNO men's and women's basketball. Well, it starts on KFAB, but then it switches over to the station that was at the time known as KCAR. And the boss there was a gentleman by the name of Neil Melkin. Neil listened to my games and knew of me. And, in fact, I'd applied for a news reporter job with him at KCAR years earlier. And he offered it to me, and I declined to take it. Um, but he's listening to the games, and he says, I want you to come in and talk to you. I want to talk to you about doing a sports talk show. And so we go in and have a conversation, and he introduces me to a guy named Bob Bruce, this bombastic individual who I've never met before. And he wants us to do a, a little trial. So we do a little trial. And eventually says, I want you to, you know, would you be interested in starting a sports talk show? And we're going to put it on this new station. We're going to rebrand everything, 1620. And so I was like, yes, I'll, I'll take it. That's a full-time job. I'm all about the full-time job and still can do the UNO stuff. So I go from little work to all of a sudden i got a full-time job. I've got these, these games. And that was really kind of the, the turning point and had the chance to start on Sportsmanlike Conduct, which – I was you know, thrilled to be a part of with both Bob and then Michael Severe for 12 years before I left it in 2012. And, of course, the show's still going on now in good hands with John Bishop, who was the best man in my wedding, and Josh Peterson, who was an intern at the station and then our producer of the show before I left. So show's in very good hands, and it was a, uh, it was a big opportunity for me to get the chance to do it when I started doing it in September of 2000. How difficult was it figuring out how to do sports talk? And that was kind of when it was still a little bit of uncharted territory. It wasn't that common to have a sports talk job. How difficult with a play-by-play background was it for you to figure out how to do that successfully? Well, and, and, and you know you know that was tough because you, you've been in the same spot. You've been in that background. And it, it, you don't, you're not an opinionated guy as a play-by-play guy necessarily. And we, we certainly know play-by-play guys who offer a lot of their opinion. I, I was never that guy. I'm really not that guy now. I'm, I'm a little more that way than I was, but not to the point of, of some. And that was really hard for me because I just never was one who gave my opinion because in, when you're doing play-by-play, it's hard to be the guy who gives the opinion, but then you have to go and face that coach or that team that you've just been critical of on the air from three to six or then two to six. You know, it's hard to rip Pat Burns of UNO football and then go sit down with him and do the Pat Burns pregame show. So it was a fine line that I had to learn how to walk between being a critic and just ripping people. And But first I had to learn how to develop opinions and how to express opinions and how to be compelling enough as a talk personality to, get, to convince people to actually listen to the opinions that I was trying to develop in the first place. So it was very hard. It was not something that was seamless. It was not something that was easy. And when you look back on it now, I'm very fortunate 
that I worked with Bob Bruce, who came from a morning show background and was very integral in helping me learn different ways that I could be entertaining and that I could be fun and still do it from a sports standpoint. And that was, I mean, that really was a crash course in learning how to do sports entertainment talk, because that's really what we were. We were a lot of trying to be entertaining coming, though, from this platform of sports. And because you can't just, you can't just go on. People all the time have the, the fallacy of a sports talk show is some guy who's really good with stats. And, oh, I, I can tell you the entire starting offensive line of the 1993 Green Bay Packers. Well, that's great. Nobody cares. I mean, that's, that's not anything that you can be compelling about. You have to be somebody that can try to convince people that there's a reason to listen to you and me going on spouting all the statistics I know about the Chicago Cubs from 1984 and going to get anybody to listen to anything I have to say. So you have to come up with different ways to be interesting and yet still be able to express your opinion. And that was a process for me. And, uh, and it still was until the day I stopped doing sports talk. It, it was, but it was a lot of fun. I had, I had a blast doing it. And at the time, it was just a godsend for me to be able to get that opportunity because it really helped me as a broadcaster in so many ways, learning how to entertain, learning how to ad-lib, learning how to be all of those things that you just never really had the chance to be. I mean, you're on the air three or four hours a day without a net, and you, ha- you better learn how to ad-lib. You better learn how to, how to be entertaining because you're not going to last very long if you don't. Do you ever miss that part of your career? I do at times. You know, it, I, I loved the camaraderie that I had with Michael, with Bob, I enjoyed the opportunity to interact a lot of times with the listeners. And, you know, it, we, it was silly fun. I mean, it, it just was. It was it was a fun time. It was a chance for me to be kind of goofy and silly on the air, do creative bits and, and do creative things. And my sometimes my creative juices miss that outlet. And that's I think that's one of the things I miss the most from it is the ability on days where there's something that I, you know, I'll still sit around and think of bits that I would do on this or that. I just don't have the creative outlet to do those anymore, nor do I really have the time to invest in editing a bit together. But I, I always loved that. I always loved getting in in the, uh, at the time, then Cool Edit, and then later Adobe Audition Machine, and editing bits together and editing opens and just coming up with different ways to have a little fun, either at my expense or at the expense of others. It was, uh, it was, it was a, a fun time, and I missed that creative outlet. So I like to go through everyone's career path because it kind of just shows the grind. Most of my audience on this podcast, I believe, is young broadcasters who would love to someday be in your shoes, and it kind of shows them how to get there or what it takes and how lucky you have to be to get there. Now I want to get to your time with Westwood One. How did you end up with that break? I, b- I believe reading up you were doing the College World Series just as a subcontracting thing with KOZN, and it was almost just luck of the draw that you were connected with them. Well, and and it really was in a lot of ways, because what happened with Westwood One was Westwood One acquired, uh, has all the NCAA rights, and when you get the NCAA radio contract, you have the radio rights to every single NCAA championship that the NCAA puts on, obviously the football playoff or then the bowl subdivision or whatever you want to call it, was not a part of that. But any of the other championships are involved. Well, college baseball's 
administered by the NCAA, so the College World Series was involved in that. And 1620 The Zone, at the time, had no one was doing the preliminary games, or if they were, it was on a very limited basis. And Neil Melkin, who is you know, a huge influence in what I've been able to do in my career, Neil went to the folks at Westwood One and said, look, we can do a better job with these games. Why don't you subcontract us the rights to the preliminary games, which you're not interested in producing anyway, because they only did and still only do the championship series. And, you know, there's just not the market for every single game of the College World Series nationwide on a wide scale. They distribute them all, but it's still probably 20 to 30 stations that take the preliminary games on an average basis. And we wanted them in Omaha at the radio station. And we're like, why don't you subcontract that to us? We'll go ahead and put them together. And as part of the deal that they put together... Neil said, and we want one of our guys, Kevin, to do these games on the preliminary broadcast, and we would like to see him involved somehow in your broadcast of the championship series. And they said, that's fine. It'll save us a little money. We'll put him on the sidelines. And at the time, Tony Roberts was doing a lot of games for Westwood One. He was the Notre Dame voice, play-by-play guy at the College Football Series, whatever. So Tony comes in, and the producer, a guy by the name of Howard Deneroff, who comes in and is producing the games, but also since he's, he's uh, moved up the echelon by this point at Westwood One, he's looking at talent, and he's, he had never met me. So he, I, I'm on the sidelines, and I start to do my thing, and they obviously are, are pleased with what I'm doing at that point, and Tony Roberts really likes me, and so we're, we're going back and forth. And, and get done with the first year, and how he says, hey, send me some stuff, I'd love to hear it. So I'd send him my UNO stuff, and years would go by and the next year 2004 hey send me some more stuff that's fine 2005 yeah send me some stuff just what i'd like to hear how you're progressing and so i'd send you more of my uno stuff and i'd go along and i'm working on the show and doing all this other stuff and having kids and all this other stuff living life and then before the college world series in 2006 he calls me and he says hey send me some more stuff i thought okay that's odd usually this happens after the series but okay so he so I, I send him some more stuff. And then he calls again, send me some more stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. So by this point, I'm kind of, you know, I sent you my best. So now I'm getting my second best. And he asks for more stuff. And now I'm scraping stuff together that sounds like I recorded it in a phone booth, but <laughs> it's what I have left. And I'm sending that to him. And he calls and he says, hey, just wanted to let you know, you're, you're, you're a finalist for the job. And I didn't know I was applying for a job. I thought I was trying, you know, thought maybe I'd have a chance to pick up an extra game here or there. And I said, I'm a finalist for the job? And he says, yeah, we're looking for somebody to be our main college football and basketball voice for our weekly game of the week. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's awesome. And... So I'm waiting and waiting to find out, and I, Michael and I are at the Big 12 Media Days doing our show, and I, I'm supposed to find out any minute. So I'm nervous, and I'm waiting, and finally find out that I've got the opportunity to, to, to do this. And so that, that fall, I go in to UNO like a week later in the summer, and I say, sit down with Gary Anderson, and I say, Gary, I'm leaving. I'm not going to be here for the fall. I'm sorry to do this in such short notice. Here's, the, here's why. And he says, well, my gosh, yes, that, I'm so excited for you. I mean, they were thrilled. They couldn't have been better. And so I'm, I'm, I leave UNO football, and several weeks later, about four or five weeks later, I'm in the booth for Pitt 
Virginia from Pittsburgh. My very first game, Westwood won, paired with Terry Bowden, and the rest is uh, then I, I moved on from there. So it, it was uh, it was a wonderful circumstance for me. It was great to have the College World Series connection. It's great to have Howie in there, who where he could get a chance to listen to what I did, and you know, then it's just again, it's just that whole patience thing, and you persist in. You know, they, if they ask you for tape, you better have some tape ready. If they're asking you for an opportunity to hear what you do, it, you better not delay because there may be something up for grabs that you don't even know about at that point. Jumping from the University of Nebraska-Omaha, which I believe at that time was a Division II NCAA school, they've since become mm-hmm. uh, Division One in the FCS level of, I guess, not they're not in football anymore, but the... Small college, Division One, mid-major level. Jumping from that to the lead broadcaster of Westwood One is skipping a lot of the traditional steps that you would have to take to get to that point. Do you feel like you were ready for the opportunity when you got it? Um, that's a good question. At the time, I felt like I was, um, but... It was a big leap, and it was honestly it was a leap of faith for Howie and Westwood One to take a guy doing Division Two and putting him on in a scenario like this, and that was a that was a pretty significant leap for them to do it because I could have screwed up. The moment could have been too big for me. I could have had problems with the moment, and that would have been it. It luckily was not, but I I was I was. Nervous, but not nervous. You know, I, I, I felt like I was in the right spot for myself at that moment. But I was overly prepared, which I knew I would be. And, you know, I, I've always believed that if you prepare yourself for it, you can do what you need to do. And so, I, I, I mean, I knew everything there was to know about Pitt and Virginia. And you prepare as much as you can. And then that first game, we go to break. And... The break was cut short all of a sudden. TV apparently said they were going to go, and then they didn't go. And so all of a sudden, we're in a break we can't get out of because it's a local break. So you can't just pull back if you're a network and every one of your 300 radio stations or whatever is in local commercials. So, of course, it's my very first game. They start to resume play. We're still 20 seconds from coming out of a break. And all of a sudden, Tyler Palco drops back the throw and lost a 60-something-yard pass down the middle of the field. And it's one of those moments I can still see the guy. I don't know. I don't remember who it is. Running right down the middle of the field, wide open. Unless Tyler Palco has some sort of horrible throw, this is going to be a 68-yard touchdown pass in my first major college football game that I'm going to miss because we're in commercial break. (laughs) And our producer... Our producer uh, says, all right, we're coming back, reenact it. And so I have to, it's the fastest 68-yard touchdown pass in the history of college football <laughs> because we're coming out of break, and I'm like, Falco in the air, but no, I mean, it could, it, there's no way if you were listening to that, you would have thought that happened live because it was Falco to this guy for 68 yards, and it literally took two seconds off the clock. I mean, it could not have been any – it was the fastest touchdown pass in history. But you do what you had to do. And so I got done with that, and I found out much later that 
the, my ability to reenact that without freaking out what convinced everybody, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be fine. We're not worried about him anymore. And so the very next week, my game was number one versus number two, Ohio State and Texas. And that was a game where you knew, okay, this is a pretty cool deal. I, you know, a, a year ago I'm doing UNO in North Dakota, and now I'm doing Ohio State, Texas. This is pretty cool. So as part of this, you get to do tons of different kinds of sports. You do the Final Four. You've done the College World Series, your NFL and college games of the weeks. The two that really kind of stand out to me that I've seen, you get to do the Masters and you've done the Olympics before from Beijing. How do you call golf on the radio? (laughs) Uh, That's a good question. I I still have not mastered that yet. Uh, You do what you do with everything else in radio play-by-play. You try to describe what you're seeing. Um, you know, it's fortunate of all the sports I call, I obviously I never played football in the National Football League. I, I never played college basketball. I never played college baseball. Uh, so I'm calling sports that I know, but I don't know them from the standpoint of, oh, I've played this sport at this level, so I know. And I've obviously never played professional golf, but I've played golf many times. So it's a sport that I at least can, I can understand, I can relate a little bit to a guy trying to hit a golf ball with a golf club because I've done that and so has everybody else. So you just try to describe like you do anything else, what you're seeing. You do it with a little more reverence, especially when you're at Augusta National where we do the Masters. But it is just it's the most unique event I do every year. It's right on the heels of the Final Four, which is, you know, very intense, very stressful, lots going on, lots of people around. And then you get to the Masters, and it's I'm not the lead guy. Bob Papa's the lead guy in the 18th tower. I'm at Amen Corner, which is believe that's not a complaint that's just a statement i love that location it is fantastic and you know you just you call what you see you get some great moments there are people everywhere it's just a it is it's really a cool event to be a part of in any way shape or form and i've been there every year since 2009 and not one time do i get there and go oh yeah i'm really taking this for granted oh another year in augusta national it's it's the chance to be on those grounds and walk in there and watch that tournament is just what, a, what an opportunity. Do they let you play on the course after the tournament's over? <laughs> no. No, they do not. And that's, and that's probably a good thing for both myself and for the members of Augusta National because <laughs> the divots I would leave would be legendary. And I'd get about one hole in, and they'd probably have some guys in green jackets walk out and say, Sure, you're you're going to need to leave now. We'll just usher you to the side. We wish you the best of luck. Please never darken our doorstep again. So no, they've never asked me or given me the opportunity to play, and I think I'd be more nervous to play that course than for any broadcast I've ever done that, because I know my golf game that would not go well. Augusta National and the golf game of Kevin Kugler are two things that never should meet. Give us a story of something that happened there. That's known for being a pretty unique place. It has a unique atmosphere. Give us a non-broadcast story, just something about the atmosphere and the event that we wouldn't be able to see uh, on TV or on the radio. My first year uh, doing the Masters was 2009, and I... You know, we, we have three golf carts as part of our radio coverage that we use to go from hole to hole to, you know, for the engineers to get the equipment. Or we have a, a, a guy who's grown up, really, with our coverage, a young man by the name of Bobby Ulrich, who has been sort of the, the Mr. Everything for us, takes us all to our court holes, gets us whatever we need. He's kind of like an assistant producer in a lot of ways. And But I commandeered, my first year, I commandeered a golf cart 
from Bobby. And I said, I'm, I'll, I'll be back. I'm just going to run over to my hole. But what I really wanted to do was take in the course. So it's Wednesday before play begins. And everybody has gone. All the patrons have headed to their cars, and they're, they're leaving. The practice round and the par three contests are done. And all that's left are just folks maintaining the ground and, uh, you know, a few television technicians and a few of us from the radio side. And I brought my golf cart up onto the course, and from the 18 green area, from the 18 tower location, looking back down the first fairway and watching the sun kind of set over Augusta National. And I can, I, I can just remember sitting there on that golf cart, and the course is quiet. You hear the birds chirping, a little breeze blowing through. And you're just sitting there alone on one of the most valuable pieces of ground in the United States of America, watching the sunset. And it was one of the most peaceful moments I've ever had in my career. Because I, it was, you know, you're in your first year there. It's a place you never really think you're going to go. You're growing up in Nebraska. You're watching it on TV every year. But you never really sit there and think, yeah, you know, someday I'll probably be there calling some action from the No, you never, that's just not something that crosses your mind. And so I, I pull out the golf cart. And I'm just sitting there watching the sunset. And it's just one of those moments that you have where you think, what has happened to my life? How am I here? It, it, it's that place, quiet, nobody around, and the sun going down. It was, it was a really, a really, I don't want to say emotional moment because I didn't get weepy, but it kind of gives me chills even thinking about it now. Just that moment alone is one of those where you think, how lucky, how blessed are you to be on a golf cart in the middle of Augusta National Golf Course, watching the sun go down, and then you're getting ready to call golf from that location. It's, it's, a, it's a spot and a moment in my life that I won't ever forget. Certainly sounds unforgettable. I'm sure the other unforgettable experience, or one of many, would be doing the Beijing Olympics. Have you done? Is it just the Beijing Olympics, or have you done more than one Olympics? Oh, no, no. This, uh, I'll be in Rio this year, and that will be Olympic number five. For me. Okay. I was in Beijing in 08. Well, what, just rank your Olympic 12, locations. <laughs> uh, the, the Olympic, I loved London in 2012 um, for ease and for the city and for everything else. I'm, I'm a big fan of London as it is. I ranked that one number one. Um, I would probably put Sochi, surprisingly, number two because I didn't think it was going to be when I went there. There was as you recall, in 2014, there were an awful lot of security concerns and was there going to be a terrorist attack? And the Russians had that place in very secure mode, and we had terrific weather, 60 degrees almost every day, light breezes in the middle of winter. It was just fantastic. So I'd rank that one to Vancouver. is probably three. Beijing, maybe 3A, uh, because I did, I did like it, but it was my first one, and I was so kind of overwhelmed with the whole experience that there's some parts of it I really enjoyed and others that I did not. And I'll be anxious to see where Rio ranks in this one this summer. Um, I, I'm, I'm always a little skeptical going into these things because all you hear are the horror stories about how this isn't done and that isn't done. There's going to be this attack or this bug or this whatever. Usually it works out fine. I'm hopeful that'll be the case again in Rio, but I'm anxious to, uh, I'm anxious to see what happens. 
How much do you get to get out and kind of experience the culture of all these places? Obviously, you're there to do a job and you want to be overly prepared, but how much time do you have to get out and kind of soak things in when you get to go overseas and have experiences like that? Well, you, you try to do a little because in a lot of these places, you don't ever know if you're going to be back. You know, you, you, I spent a month in China, and I who knows if I'll ever be back in China again. So, you, you know, I went out and did the Great Wall, and I went to the Silk Market several times, and, you know, we ate in a in a uh, at a restaurant in a hotel, a, a Chinese neighborhood that we had to kind of walk through some back alleys to find and had this amazing duck dinner in this random little restaurant that was kind of buried in the middle of this Chinese neighborhood in Beijing. And, I mean, it was, yeah, we, we experienced, I've tried to get out when we were in Russia after we realized things weren't going to be bad. We one day took a took the train to a different city and on a day, a morning off that we all had, a rare one to be honest with you, and spent that morning in this, this little village where we wandered around and went through the shops and, you know, just kind of tried to be a part of, that little part of the world, we walked a couple of times down to the town that we were in, Adler, which was right in the media village area, and we'd leave the security and walk downtown. They had a huge market area in downtown Adler, if you'd call it downtown, that you know, they had all kinds of little Russian pastries and spices and all kinds of different things to purchase, much like a farmer's market that you'd find in any location in the United States, except for the fact they all spoke Russian, and we didn't have any idea what we were buying or eating, but we did it anyway. Um, and that, you know, you just, when you're in London, London culture is very similar in a lot of ways to American culture. Same in Vancouver. In Vancouver, you feel like you're in Seattle, so it's not really a, a huge culture shock when you're up there. But these places that are a little more unique, a little more difficult to get to, try to spend as much time as you can knowing that it's limited, but you try to immerse yourself a little bit in the culture just because you never know if you're ever going to be back in that location. I'm almost sure I'll never be back in Sochi again. So in the late 2000s, early 2010s, there was a couple different times that the Nebraska play-by-play job opened. And growing up in Lincoln and living in Omaha, I'm sure that at least at some point in your life and career, that was your dream job. You seemed at the time like a potential natural fill-in for that job. Did you ever have a chance at that, and did you ever want it? Why did? And if you did want it or had a chance at it, why did you decide to do what you're doing now instead? Um, you know, and this this will this always surprises people. It was never my thing. Um, I, I never I never sought it. I was never interested in it. Really, I mean, I look. There's a lot of guys who gone through there and have done a, a fantastic job at it and you, obviously living in this state most of my life you know the role that that plays for the people of this state and I certainly respect that and I respect a lot of the guys who have done that role um, but it was never really the thing that I was particularly interested in doing I always kind of wanted to do the game of the week you know or a game of the week I, I, I love the idea of seeing different places I didn't travel much as a kid and so it was kind of a cool thing for me to have the chance to, you know, if I was going to do this, maybe I could travel to different locations and see different teams and do different games. That was always kind of where I wanted to go with this. And so the Nebraska job was really never something that resonated with me. I mean, it's a great gig, don't get me wrong, but it's just it's never been something I've sought. It's never been something that I've had any discussion with anybody about. 
I have had a chance before to work for the Husker Sports Network and declined some opportunities to do so over the years, doing sports nightly and that kind of stuff. But I've never been anybody who has aggressively or even really not aggressively sought that job. That's, that, that job and really team jobs at this point were not what I was focusing on. I was more focused on broadening my horizons a little bit and doing as many different games in different locations as I could. Doing as many different games in as many different locations as you can means that you're gone a lot. You obviously have a wife, you have a couple kids, a nice family. How do you balance family life with such a demanding travel schedule and such a demanding preparation schedule? Well, and and if there are young broadcasters listening to this, I'll I'll give you the advice that I give to anybody who is in this. Uh, Make sure you know and they know that games occur on nights and weekends. And make sure they know and you know that that's when all your friends have free time. And that's when all your friends want to get together. And it is, it is something that is the realization of every broadcaster and their spouse at some point or another that it is hard to maintain a social life and have social gatherings because there are just people who are not particularly interested in waiting around for the random Tuesday that you have free. So it's a challenge. It really is. I'm not going to sit here and say it's not. My wife is fantastic. She manages the house and the kids and life, and it helps that she comes from the background of athletics. Her dad was, for decades, high school football coach in Nebraska, and so she was kind of, she knows the drill. She knows, you know, dad was gone most weekends either with the games or watching film and with the coaches and with the student-athletes and all that other stuff at the high school level, so she understands it. I'm not going to say it's always easy because it's not, but she does a great job. My kids are extremely supportive, and for them, they're older. My, I, my oldest is about to turn 16. My youngest is 13. So for them, I was not traveling as much when they were young, when they were little, little. And now that they're older, they're old enough to understand, look, this is what I do. And then you just try to maximize the opportunities that you have when you have them. I, I tend not to do much during the month of July from a work standpoint by design. And they're off from school. So we are together pretty much all the time in July and early August. Most years this year will be an exception because I'll be in Rio from August, you know, first three weeks of August for the Olympics. But it'll be... It'll be an interesting, it's it's an interesting challenge for anyone who does games to make sure they balance the family life with the business life. And you make sacrifices on both ends sometimes. And look, there would have, it would have been a lot easier, I'm sure, for them if I was a team guy home for half my games. But that wasn't what I wanted to do. And fortunately, I have a wife who allows me to live the dream that I've had. And it's a, it's a really great partnership, and I, I, I tell kids all the time, when you get into this, just make sure she or he knows what they're getting into with you because you are going to be gone. You are going to be working nights and weekends. They, don't, they play the games when the normal world is not working because they want the normal world to come to the game, which means you are working when the normal world is not working. Uh, and if you're willing to deal with that and understand that, Sometimes it's hard to get everybody together for a party when you want to, and maybe you miss a, uh, an occasional Valentine's Day. So be it. But as long as they understand the deal when they're going in, you can make it work. 
Do you know how many days you were on the road last year? <laughs> nope. I try not to count um, because I, I don't. I don't really want to know. Um, I, I can tell you most weeks during the football season, I get home on Monday morning and I leave Thursday evening, and then I rinse and repeat the next week. And once basketball season starts, it varies a little bit more, obviously, because you have more midweek games. Um, but it's, uh, it's, let's just say I have really good status on two different airlines, and that isn't because I'm, you know, flying across the world. That's just a lot of flights and a lot of time on an airplane uh, to get that status. So I don't know how many days it was, but it was it was some. So take us through your preparation props process. When does it start, and just what do you do step by step? Oh boy! I'll do it for um, football me, first. For a football, yeah, for a football broadcast, obviously that's the most intensive preparation because there are so many teams, and doing two games a week, you really try to uh, to jump into this thing early. At some point during the week, we'll have conference calls with coaches. Usually on Wednesday, conference call day, so we sit down. We go through coordinators and head coaches at the college level and talk with each of them from the visiting team. We do the home team meetings when we get to the site on Fridays with the college teams. So basically for this past this past year, you get home on a Monday. Usually I would afford myself Monday afternoon off uh, to kind of basically relax because I was exhausted at that point. And then you get up Tuesday morning and you start reading. And you read and read and read as much as you can. You read as many stories as you can. You try to get yourself well-versed. And really, you don't stop reading during the course of any week because you just want to be – and unfortunately, I cover one conference for the most part, college football-wise, the Big Ten, and then the National Football League. So there's never any shortage of what to read. You know where your focus is. You don't have to worry about, okay, I really need to focus on the ACC this week because you don't have them in college football. At least I don't. So I don't have to worry about that. That makes it a little bit easier. Um, you read a lot on Tuesdays. You've got your game notes for your college games, so I usually start putting my charts together on Tuesdays. Wednesdays, I get my college charts finalized, move on to my football charts for the NFL, work on those through Wednesday all the way through Thursday, get that all done, hit the road, put the finishing touches on my charts on Friday and Friday night. We'll have a production meeting, get my notes all finalized, go do my college game Saturday on the plane. Uh, do any late notes that I need to add to my NFL chart. Uh, do that on Sunday morning as well. We'll have a production meeting on Sunday mornings, uh, usually over breakfast. Go back to my room, jot notes down for a couple of hours, and go to the game, do the game, and then start it all over again on Monday. I mean, there's really, you know, travel home, take Monday afternoon off, and uh, jump right back in on Tuesday. There's just really no, it's a, it's a rhythm you have to find, and the other guys do it differently, I'm sure. And, what works for me doesn't work for them. What works for them probably doesn't work for me. But you find whatever it is, you find your rhythm, and you just keep doing it every single week. In a lot of ways, it's no different than what anybody does in their job. You know how to do your job, so you go in, and it becomes kind of the process that you go through every single week. And that's, that's what I do with mine. It's, look, we, we try not to let anything get through the cracks, but something probably does sometimes. And then you adjust on the fly as as you can, but the nice thing is you work with a lot of good people. You have producers, you have partners who see things that you may not see, and they're there to help you out, and, uh, and then you do your games and hope they went well and try to do a better job the next week. Okay, so let's get to some fun stuff now. 
What is the weirdest place you've ever broadcasted? You've been overseas. You've been in western Nebraska. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, isolated places out there. What is the weirdest broadcast location you've ever had to deal with? Uh, I did a game from the roof of the press box in Superior, Nebraska, on a bag cell phone uh, when I was doing high school football games. Uh, this is and. Kids, if you're listening, Google bag cell phones so you can see what I'm talking about. But essentially, you used to have this giant cell phone in a bag, and I'd have a little antenna that I'd prop up somewhere. Well, Superior didn't have a spot in their small press box for a broadcast, so I was on the roof with, one of a, I think, a metal roof in Superior with an antenna. It sounds terribly dangerous right now, now that I'm telling you about it. But that was, to me, that's one of the weirdest places I've ever done a game from the roof. Of a high, and, and you know what? Anybody who's done high school sports has done a game from a roof of a press box <laughs> somewhere, I guarantee it. Uh, any other just weird horror stories or just strange happenings that you've had in a game before? Well, you know, you, you prepare for the weird stories or for the bad things that happen. I, I was there when Ware broke his leg for Louisville uh, in the NCAA tournament, and that was a horrible thing that happened because – I've never seen any reaction like that from anybody. And so, and I'll be honest with you, I've gotten few, I've gotten more interview requests to talk about that after that than I have for any other game I've ever done. You know, you get a, you call a game and people call, they want to, you know, have your sports talk show or this or that. I, to just talk about what I saw and how I described Kevin Ware's broken leg. I got a lot of people who were very interested to hear how that went, which was which was surprising to me. But you know, I had a, I had a power outage once at a football game at UNO, first game of the season, so you don't have a whole lot to go on, and the power went out in the stadium, but not for our broadcast. So we had 45 minutes to fill in game one, quarter one of a football game in the football season's debut. That uh, that is not an easy task. Um, because the power stayed on for us, but it didn't stay on in the stadium, and they couldn't get the lights to come back on right away. So we had to fill for 45 minutes. We were out of commercial breaks for the entire half by the time they got the lights back on. So if you were an advertiser for that Northwest Missouri State UNO football game that day, you got some bonus spots because we were doing anything we could to try to kill those 45 minutes. And it was, and that's, and that's why I overprepare to this day because the power could go out again, and I got to be ready for it. You alluded earlier in this interview that you may have said some unfortunate things on the air—nothing profane, <laughs> but uh, something that you may have regretted. Can you tell us what that was? Well, I mean, it's when you do a talk show for twelve years, four hours a day. You're just there, just ways to word things that you probably regret uh, or you would do better in the second go-around. I can't think of anything. I wasn't anything profane. I've never, knock on wood, I've never cursed on the air and hopefully never will. Um, but there's just, you know, there are just times where you say something and then afterwards you think, gosh, I really could have been a little bit smoother with that. I could have been a little more articulate with that. I could have been a little more descriptive with that. Nothing glaring, and, and most of it is stuff that if you heard it, you probably wouldn't even blink at it. But it's one of those things that any broadcaster walks out of a broadcast, and immediately, we're always our worst critics. You can always think of ten other things that you wish you had done better. You can you know you have a good broadcast, but you think, okay, I could have done this a little bit better on that call, or I could have said this in a little bit different way. That's really more what I mean. 
although I'm sure there were plenty of times during 12 years of doing four hours a day of sports talk that I said something flat-out stupid, and uh, I'm sure got called on it at the time by a message board guy or social media guy at that point. I just don't remember it right now. So I was looking back on some articles written about you, and there was, I don't know if it was in college or shortly after college, but you did a, a, a weekly talk show where you, with John Bishop, who now does Creighton basketball, I believe, and you got to interview people like Kurt Gowdy and Mel Allen and Harry Carey and Ernie Harwell. Go back to those, and what was that like? Well, that was when we were in college, and we did a sports talk show when we were in college together, and we tried to get some help from the University of Nebraska. We were college students doing a college radio show, and they were not particularly interested in helping a talk show in 1993 and 1994 by providing us with interviews and guests and anything else. So we decided, all right, fine, we're just going to try to turn this to a national scope and so we started, we said we should do a Voices of the Game series. And I'm glad we're discussing this now because that's one of my things. I need to get that stuff archived. I still have the tapes of it. I have just not transferred it digitally, and I need to do that before those tapes rot. <laughs> um, but we, we, we'd sit down, and we would start trying to get a hold of these broadcasters and get a hold of Ernie Harwell. Okay. Got a hold of Mel Allen. Okay, great. Get a hold of Jack Brickhouse. Got a hold of Harry Carey. We got a hold of Kurt Gowdy, as you mentioned. We talked to all of these guys, and they were so gracious with their time. And I think we did 45 minutes to an hour on air straight with no break with Mel Allen and Kurt Gowdy the same way, Ernie Harwell. These gentlemen were so good to us. And they, I mean, they have no idea who we are. I've never, never I still never met any of these men. And I'm obviously not going to have the chance to do that now. But they were so gracious to us. And just would tell, I mean, it's two college kids asking probably stupid college kid questions. And they were so gracious to tell us stories of Mel Allen telling stories of Babe Ruth and Kurt Gowdy telling us stories of his first broadcast. And, uh, it, was, it was remarkable how generous these men were with their time and how kind they were to do this for a couple of yokels in the middle of Nebraska who were in college just trying to figure out a way to make it in this world and make it in this business. And I, I will always be appreciative of those guys for the generosity they showed to kids they didn't really have any reason to show generosity to. And that's, I mean, that those guys are all legendary voices and legendary names. And, I mean, the, the chance to talk with them is still the highlight of my career and that wasn't even a career thing that was just a college thing and to think about mel allen taking time jack brickhouse taking time to, to chat with any of us uh, it was it was so nice it was fantastic i feel like that's deja vu all over again here in 2016 but uh obviously i'm not in college but i do very much appreciate you coming on here but Going to the University of Nebraska Lincoln, there's it's not exactly a broadcaster's factory that sends people out like Syracuse in Kansas. And that's one of the things I like to talk about, and sometimes I probably take some unfair shots at place like that. And it's mostly out of uh just because I didn't go there and didn't get the advantages that they get. Did do you believe that it helped you to go to a place where maybe you were able to get more reps immediately and not have to wait in line, or did you have to? Um, I, I got a ton of reps because 
what I found was there weren't a lot of people that went through the sports broadcasting class at Nebraska at the time I went through that were particularly interested in doing games. I mean, really, the, the, it was a fall class. And then everything else after that fall class was done on a volunteer basis. So if you wanted to, for example, do basketball or baseball at Nebraska, you volunteered for it outside of the class that you were in. Well, I, nobody wanted to volunteer. Their class was done. I wanted to volunteer. John Bishop wanted to volunteer. A guy by the name of Tony Boone wanted to volunteer. Tony now writes for the Omaha World Herald. And we were only the we were basically the three people that wanted to do games. Nobody else did. And so we ended up doing a full schedule of baseball games. So from the standpoint of rep, it was great for me because we did talk show every week. We did games all the time. Nobody, I mean, this was in the days where Nebraska baseball was fortunate to draw 250 people to a game. But I loved, but I loved baseball, and I loved the chance to call it. And so we would sign up for every game we could possibly do. John and I would alternate play-by-player. Tony and I would alternate. And it was great. It was a great opportunity for me. Now, had you gone to Syracuse or Kansas or something like that, the networking possibilities there, that's that, that's what really makes that such an advantage for those broadcasters is, you know, you, you hear the, the term Syracuse Mafia thrown around quite a bit, and it, there's, a, there's a reason it is because they're family. I mean, they all know each other. They all gather again. And, it, look, I, they're, they're, they're good at what they do as a journalism school, so the accolades that they receive are justified. But it does help to have that networking connection. There's so many of those guys that are employed in the business, whether on air or behind the scenes, that if you come from there, you've got a nice little in. So in some ways, it's a benefit to me having gotten the chance to get a lot of reps in a place like Nebraska. But in other instances, from a networking standpoint, it probably would have helped to be at a different school. But I don't regret a minute of my time at Nebraska. It was, it was exactly where I needed to be at that point. And the good thing is it has not hampered my progress as a broadcaster in any way, shape, or form. So uh, it's, it's an absolute perfect fit for me. What did you do coming up outside of calling lots of games to improve, and what do you still do today to continue getting better, even though you're you know, very close, if not at the top of the industry? Well, you try to, you, honestly, you just try to listen to what you do or watch what you do, and it's hard for me. I mean, I, I've done this a long time, and it is still almost I cringe sometimes when I listen to myself or watch myself. I, I've never really thought of myself as a TV guy. Uh, and so watching me do TV is sometimes really hard for me. Um, but And learning how to do TV is, is still something I'm working on uh, because it's a different play-by-play than radio. But it is, it, it's, you got to watch yourself. you got to listen to yourself. You've got to understand, all right, did I do this right? Could I have done this better? You know, you, you, you critique yourself. You ask for others who know you to give you their thoughts, you know, what do you, what you hear, do you like, do you not? And, there, and I have several people who work in this business, producers and others, that, that I talk to regularly and say, you know, what did you hear here, what do you think? And they're, they're brutally honest with me, which I need. I mean, I, you, I, my wife, I love her to death, but she's rarely going to be critical of me. Oh, you, were, you sounded great, you look great. Well, okay, that's great. Thank you, sweetheart. Uh, but, but she, well, she's my biggest supporter. She's not the person I would go to and say, break this down for me and tell me what I did wrong. But there are several producers that I will talk to, and they'll, and they'll tell me, look, this was really good, but what if you'd done this or what if you'd done that? Oh, yeah, that's good. 
and you try to file that away to improve the next time you go out because there's no such thing as a perfect broadcast. It has not happened yet. I don't anticipate it ever happening. And if it does, I'll, like, like if I ever shot under par on a golf course, I'd sell my golf clubs in the parking lot after the round. If I ever had a perfect broadcast, I'd leave my headset there, drop my gear, and I'd, you'd never see me again. I'd be gone. So that's, I don't anticipate either of those things happening. So I think I'll be in good shape, and I'll be hopefully continue to work in this business trying for that perfect game. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to, both on a national level and maybe some you know, people who are at a, a lower level who you just happen to have heard at some point and enjoyed? Well, there, there are so many of them. I mean, really, there, we are really fortunate. It's a really good time to be a broadcast consumer. Everybody's been just, just singing the praises of Vince Kelly from a baseball broadcast standpoint. And really, there is no better. He deserves every amount of praise that he gets. He's a fantastic storyteller. He is a wonderful wordsmith. All of those things I'm incredibly envious of. And I am in awe of his skill. Even at his age, when you'd expect most broadcasters to have long since lost their fastball, he still has his fastball. He's a remarkable individual, a remarkable broadcaster, and someone who, when he leaves at the end of this year, there will be no one like him left. And that, and that is sad because he is he's truly unique to the craft. Um, but from, from the standpoint of game callers, I'm a fan of Sean McDonough. I think he calls such an incredibly concise, exciting game. He never makes a mistake that I've heard. He's always locked in on pronunciations, which is the, the first way you could tell if a broadcaster has not done the prep work because they're not pronouncing things right. He is. I, I've never heard him make a mistake there. I, he's fantastic. I enjoy Brad Nessler's call. I enjoy uh, Mike Tirico's call in almost everything. He knows the rules better than anybody in this business. And he's fantastic. And I enjoy Al Michaels' call, too. I, I just I don't get the chance to see as much Al Michaels anymore because I'm doing the radio side while he's doing the television side of Sunday Night Football. But I, I still enjoy him. And I, I'll be honest, there is a nostalgic feel that I have for Brett Musburger that just rivals almost anything else. I, I, I he is When I hear his voice, it still, to me, signals big games. And that, you know, that's... That's the thing that broadcasters can re- – you can resonate as a broadcaster with a fan base. When they hear your voice and go, ooh, something big's happening because this guy's here. Brett Musburger, you know, Keith Jackson was that guy forever in college football. You'd heard Keith Jackson's voice, oh, big college football game. You hear Brett Musburger's voice now, and in, the, in my mind, it's still, that guy's doing a big game right now, and I want to listen to what he has to say. Those are just a few of the guys. There's some local guys, too, that have been – overlooked and now with the advent of satellite radio you get the chance to hear guys like Eli Gold you get the chance to hear guys like West Durham from locations that are not where you're from you get the chance to hear these guys call games for their teams and their passionate fan bases and I am uh, I, it, it's really humbling how many really good broadcasters there are out there right now calling games whether it be for a team whether it be for another network whether it be for wherever I mean there are just a lot of guys that do a tremendous job, but those are some of the ones that come to mind as some of my favorites. Being from Omaha, of course, they're known for their stakes. Really, Nebraska known for stakes, and I'm sure, assuming that you've had your fair share if you've lived your entire life in Nebraska. What is the best stake in Nebraska, and have you found one anywhere else in the world that's better? Um, I had a prime rib at a place in Chicago, uh, and I, 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 a place is called Bones. That's 
was really, really good many, many years ago that I very much enjoyed. Uh, you can't go wrong with the Drover in Omaha. I mean, the whiskey steak is as good as it gets. You really can't go wrong with that. But there are so many good places in Omaha. I hate to just single out one, but, it, I mean, when you're coming to Omaha and you're coming to the College World Series, good luck getting to the Drover. Plan early because if the crowds aren't there from fans, media folks will be there. The baseball writers are there. I think they live there most times. There's a town for the College World Series, and you can't go wrong with that whiskey marinade on a steak from the Drover. That's, uh, that's about as good as it gets. All right, you have given us enough of your time, so I'll let you get back and visit your family or whatever you want to do for the rest of your evening. But I just want to really thank you for joining us here. I appreciate it very much. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. Glad to be on with you. How would someone get in touch with you if they wanted to do so? Um, they go outside and yell really loudly. <laughs> no, um, I'm, I, am, uh, I am on Twitter, at Kevin Kugler. Uh, easy to find me there, and I believe that's how we got in touch in the first moment. So uh, feel free to tweet at me. I, uh, I do my best to respond to tweets when they come my way. And do you have anything you want to plug or promote or anything like that while you're on here that my loyal legion of tens of listeners would want to know? Uh, you know, no, I have nothing. I'm, I'm not selling anything. I am not. Uh, I don't have a book. I don't have an audio <laughs> tape. I don't have a. Uh, I don't have a Tom Amansky defensive drill video. I have nothing. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just doing games on Big Ten Network and Westwood One Radio and kind of living my life. So, so I got, I got nothing to promote. Sorry. I, I wish I could. I wish I could tell you that I had. You know, oh, I've got a movie coming out that I'd love you to go see. I, I have nothing. I have nothing for you to uh, promote this moment. Well, when you release your pamphlet on old CBA stories, we'll, we'll make sure people know about it here. I'll, uh, I'll work on that on the, in the airports this fall. All right, Kevin Kugler from Westwood One, the NFL, college football, Masters, you name it, he's probably there. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. We're offering bonus content that is available only to our email subscribers and people who like the Say the Damn Score Facebook page for this episode, something that's probably going to become a regular feature of the podcast. Kevin gave great advice on time management in building your prep with a really busy schedule doing multiple games a week and we have separated that and we are using it as bonus content so if you want to listen to that it's posted on our facebook page at facebook.com slash say the damn score or i'll send it out to all of our email subscribers and you can do that by going to the top right of the page at say the damn score.com also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on itunes or stitcher follow me on twitter at radio underscore logan and i'm logan anderson thanks for tuning in and next time you're on the air remember to say the damn score